listener production. In this episode of The Briefing, how a fight between two of our best-known billionaires, Andrew Forrest and Mike Cannon-Brooks, is endangering Australia's most visionary renewable project, the Sun Cable. So that's the huge Northern Territory solar farm, which will pump power via sea cable to Singapore when and if it gets built, because the project went into voluntary administration last week. That's when a business hits so much financial trouble that an external administrator is brought in to sell off its assets. The Sun Cable project has entered voluntary administration. Shadows loom over Sun Cable's centrepiece project. An epic $35 billion solar failure. So this news raises so many questions. What are Twiggy Forrest and Cannon Brooks disagreeing on? Is the project a beautiful idea that's simply unrealistic? Will it fall over? Is Cannon Brooks in over his head or will he find new partners to buy it back without Twiggy Forrest involved? There are so many questions to answer. We'll get to them in our briefing. First, here are today's headlines with Katrina Blowers. It's Monday, the 16th of January. There are fears an Australian man is among the 68 people that have died in a plane crash in Nepal. There were 72 on board. Hundreds have been searching the area where the Yeti Airlines aircraft crashed in Pokhara in central Nepal yesterday. Now, local residents have managed to take two passengers to hospital. It's not yet known why the plane crashed, Tom, because the weather was Mm. so clear. Yeah, so it's Nepal's worst air crash in three decades. And you've actually flown this route, Katrina. Yeah, I was thinking as I heard about this plane crash last night, I'm like, I wonder if that was Yeti Air because that was the most terrifying landing I've ever done. We were trekking and Pokhara is kind of like one of those um, points where you land to access all those amazing mm. treks. And the pilots were actually fighting over who would land the plane. They were physically fighting. Wow. So I, I didn't actually know whether I was going to survive that landing. Thankfully, I did. Uh, meanwhile, we've got some good news though. A Sydney boy who was in the helicopter crash on the Gold Coast two weeks ago. He's recovering. He has been taken off life support. His dad says he's responding to questions that he's asking him by nodding and shaking his head. So that's really good news. Absolutely. And President Joe Biden is in hot water over his own classified document scandal after it was revealed last week that as far back as November, a series of classified documents from his time as vice president were found in his old office. Then it was revealed on Thursday there were also documents in his garage in his Delaware home. So on Thursday, the Attorney General Merrick Garland announced that he'd appointed a special counsel to investigate the matter, which is similar to the way they've handled Trump's document scandal, Katrina. So this is not a good look for Joe Biden. It's really not, especially at a time when his approval ratings were so high and inflation was starting to ease. So it looked like he was about to experience a bit of a a nice golden era, but uh, not now. And it's just, you know, as you say, not a great look. But People are saying that the scale of this is just nowhere near what was found at Trump's Mar-a-Lago mansion. I think all up in those two raids, there were something like nearly 50 boxes of containers, um, one of which contained 11,000 documents with uh, classification markings on about 100 of them. So this is just not the same kind of scale that we're talking mm. about. But as you say, it still shouldn't happen. Well, the other key difference is that in the case of Trump's documents, the FBI had to go in and conduct a raid to get them. The documents in Joe Biden's possession were voluntarily handed over. Anyway, as we say, bad look and one to watch to see what the investigation uncovers. 
The New South Wales Premier is being referred to police over his wearing of a Nazi uniform on his 21st birthday. The state leader of the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party is behind this one, saying that Dominic Perrottet failed to disclose in political documents that he wore the costume. So when pollies sign up to run at an election, they have to make a legally binding statutory declaration about anything in their history that might be likely to cause embarrassment to the party. So I guess, Tom, that withholding something like a Nazi costume could be seen as a bit of a breach of that stat deck. Yeah, interesting that it's the Shooters Party going after him here. They're, you know, generally considered right-wing when uh, Labor and the Greens in New South Wales are not going that hard. Um, I imagine that's just a matter of principle that this was 20 years ago and he's owned it, admitted to it, given a you know, wholehearted apology and moving on. So I don't know if there'll be much in this this question about the statutory declaration, but um, it certainly revealed a lot about the state of the internal politics in the New South Wales Liberal Party. So mm. let's see what else drops between now and the election in March. Social media personality Andrew Tate has had $5.6 million worth of his assets seized by Romanian authorities. It's mainly luxury cars. Uh, 15 of those have been seized, 14 designer watches and some cash in several currencies, which he was keeping at a compound near Bucharest. It's after Tate and his brother Tristan were arrested last month on charges including human trafficking and rape, which they deny. Now, if prosecutors can prove Tate gained money through human trafficking, those assets that they've seized could be used to cover the expenses of the investigation and then compensation for victims. Romanian authorities say that they've identified six victims in this human trafficking case who were subjected to acts of physical violence and mental coercion and were sexually exploited and and forced to appear in pornographic videos. Yeah, so it's a massive fall from Grace, not that he had any grace whatsoever, Andrew Tate, but this seemed to have started around the time of that little bit of online banter with Greta Thunberg. So um, Tate tweeted her bragging about, you know, his long list of high-emitting luxury cars. She quipped back at him on Twitter saying, you know, send his list to smalldickenergy at getalife.com. And then very soon (laughs) after that, he was arrested. So he's been in jail since then. And now those cars he was boasting about are being taken away. So he's in serious trouble. Yeah, the Bugatti that he posted that picture about where he was at the petrol station filling it up, uh, I haven't actually seen whether that one has been taken away, but uh, let's hope so. The Australian Open begins today and there's more prize money than ever. It's now hit $100 million in total. Some of the big names hitting the court today are Rafael Nadal, Daniil Medvedev, Stefano Tsitsipas. It's also going to be the end for Sam Stosa. She's going to retire after the Open. And when she was asked about the highlights of her career, she singled out her US Open final win against Serena Williams in 2011. I couldn't have asked for any more. I did that. I did more than what I ever thought was going to be possible. Yeah, so she'll be out on the court at this Australian Open. She's in the women's doubles and the mixed doubles. So what a great career she's had and what an interesting tournament this is going to be. Yeah, definitely. And just the reception that Djokovic got from the crowd over the weekend. It was like he was some kind of superstar. People are genuinely loving him again. Yeah, I'm part of that crowd. I'll be cheering him on after the hell he went through last year to come back here again with his dignity. Um, And I think that was just a really 
a really smart move on his part to do that charity match on Friday night with Kyrgios. It got to show a much more human side of a man that can be seen as robotic. And I think it probably takes the pressure off him when he takes the court in the first round. He's already been out there. He's, I guess, had that big response from the crowd and it looks like he's going to move forward in a really positive way. Yeah, dignity is definitely the best word to describe how he's handled himself. All right, Katrina, we'll catch you tomorrow. I'm about to go deep on the fight between two billionaires over Sun Cable. All right, now to our interview on the Sun Cable fight between Australia's two most prominent billionaires, Mike Cannon-Brooks and Twiggy Forrest. Twiggy Forrest, of course, made his money with Fortescue, an iron ore company, Mike Cannon-Brooks with Atlassian, a tech company. As I mentioned at the top of the podcast last week, the Sun Cable project, said to be eventually worth around $30 billion, went into voluntary administration. So let's find out what is going on with senior resource writer for the Australian Financial Review, Angela McDonald-Smith. Angela, thank you so much for joining us on the briefing. Did you see this bust up coming? Were there any warning signs that Andrew Forrest and Mike Cannon-Brooks were coming to blows over Sun Cable? I would say from my point of view, it was it came as a bit of a shock, really. I think there were others closer to the venture, maybe some with business contacts to the venture that did see some warning signs. But in general, I think having both Mike Cannon-Brooks and Andrew Forrest on board was seen as a big coup for this venture and really should have smoothed the way towards successful delivery. So it did come as a bit of a shock. Well, a lot of people, including the Australian federal government, see this as a a very exciting project that will be an important part of Australia's future as a big renewable energy exporter. Let's talk more about the project itself. It's a huge solar farm with the world's longest subsea power cable to Singapore. How much could it change the face of Australia's electricity industry? Yes, just the scale of the project is just amazing. You've got to remember that it's one of the world's, or would be one of the world's biggest renewable energy infrastructure projects. This idea about exporting solar power to Singapore is just really quite mind-boggling in a way. And it would have been a great sort of contributor to that ambition that Australia and the government has of really making the country into a a bit of a green export superpower in a rather unusual way, really, because, of course, these long uh, cables, as you mentioned, are pretty unusual. This would have been the longest ever built and, of course, maybe may still be built, but we really got to see where it goes now. It does seem to be in a bit of trouble now. The government, uh, the Northern Territory government and the federal government are are definitely not writing it off. Um, Neither are the people involved either, but it obviously has hit a bit of a roadblock at the moment. So we'll see where it goes from here. Well, as you say, it's, it's an amazing vision, but it's yet to become a reality. And that seems to be where some of the sticking points are coming up. Both parties still say they do believe in that vision. They just seem to be at odds irreconcilable odds about how they're getting there. So what, from your assessment, are the key differences that have driven them apart? The issue seems to have been over the last tranche of funding, the last uh, section of like $60 million or so of funding that was due to be distributed or called on from from the last sort of um, investors uh, in December. This all relates to a, a $210 million tranche of funding, what they call a Series B funding, 
that was agreed to in March. And of course, for those sorts of deals, various milestones of project delivery need to be met in order for the funding to be dispersed, I suppose, by the investors. And it got to a stage last December when this last $60 million was being called on, but various project delivery milestones had not been met at that stage. And that seems to have caused a big dispute between Canon Brooks and Forrest just about what sort of hurdles, I suppose, should be applied and how the financing should be restructured in order to allow that last crucial $60 million to be paid out. To be at a stage to actually bring in new investors, of course, it is like a massive project. $35 billion is the total investment cost, according to Infrastructure Australia. You know, they obviously need to get you know big, important investors on board later on. And this 60 million was going to be the last tranche that would get them there. And it's at this crucial point that it's all sort of come to a bit of an issue. And of course, the, the, the result of that had to be placed in, in voluntary administration. So where is the project up to? I mean, how much infrastructure has been built at this point and how far behind is it? Well, it's really at the stage of preparations and studies and engineering studies and approvals. When you think about this project, it's hugely complex. It involves a massive solar farm in the middle of the Northern Territory. It involves an overhead cable to Darwin, battery storage, huge amounts of battery storage, both in Barclay and the rural area where the solar farm is, but also in Darwin. And then, of course, the big uh, subsea cable all the way to Singapore that passes through Indonesian waters. So, you know, this involves huge engineering challenges, huge preparatory work and approvals, subsea mapping, government approvals from the, from the Indonesian side, from the Singapore side, from the land tenure side in, in the Northern Territory. So it really has been just at that stage of approvals, of engineering studies, of just trying to put it all together. There's not actually anything that's been built yet. <laughs> it's all in that preparatory stage. And that was you know, expected to continue to, you know, until financial close, which was only um, scheduled for 2024. It's only at that stage that you'd actually get anything built on the ground. I do wonder whether Mike Cannon-Brooks has got in over his head here. He clearly has a big vision uh, for Australia's energy transition. He's big on AGL transitioning to a renewable energy focus company. He's big on this venture, Sun Cable. But his expertise is not in big infrastructure projects, which is what he's waded into here. His expertise are in technology. Do you think he might have got himself in a bit too deep here and the reality may be starting to not measure up to the vision or the ideology? Well, that's certainly uh, one of the criticisms being levelled by Andrew Forrest's Squadron Energy. But I think you also need to remember that Canon Brooks is a pretty experienced investor in renewable energy. He has, of course, you know, Atlassian is how, how, how you all know him, but he does have quite an extensive portfolio of renewable energy investments as well. Mm. Um, perhaps, of course, not in that big infrastructure area, though. Yeah. So that I think, where it's a bit difficult. Well, that's, that's why they could have been great partners, because 
Forrest and Fortescue bring a bigger and longer track record on infrastructure projects and Cannonbrooks brings the technology expertise. But it just, I don't know, Mike Cannonbrooks has lost a lot of money on, on the valuation of Atlassian recently. He rose to prominence um, because of this huge growth in his company, shot up the rich list, has bought lots of property. But it feels like in a way 2021 was a big peak for him in personal wealth, in Atlassian's growth, in the scale of his vision for our renewable energy future and the big transition ahead. But he's hitting some major headwinds on all of those fronts in the last 12 months. He's certainly got a, a big job ahead of him. I mean, just with with AGL, of course, that was like one of the big corporate stories of the year of 2022. And um, certainly there's there's a long way to go with AGL. They've been in a, a little bit of a downturn lately and they've been shedding staff. So, you know, but the, you know, I, I would say that um, Cannabrooks does have the vision that's required for these sorts of things. They, they, these are massive mega projects and it's projects on these scale that we need to actually make a difference in the decarbonisation mm. of both Australia and, and of the region in Asia. And, you know, I think um, his dedication to actually sort of putting some of his wealth towards those decarbonisation uh, projects, you know, does, you do have to give some credit to that, really. So do you still back him or do you think 2021 was peak Mike Cannon-Brooks and it's downhill from here? I do think that the jury's still out on that. I, I you know, I know he's had um, difficulties with Atlassian. Um, obviously, there's a tech crisis more than anything, perhaps, um, in, in 2022, you know, rather than a, uh, a renewable energy crisis so uh, or a green energy crisis. Well, it was a tech, know, we, tech valuation crisis more than a tech crisis, wasn't it? Yes, I guess so. Uh, but when you look at the decarbonisation journey, we're very much at the beginning of, of what's going to be a multi-decade journey here. Yeah. People like Cannon Books and Forest are going to be crucial, I think, for, for bringing it forward because, you know, it's billions of dollars worth of investment that's required for this journey. Governments can only go so far. So those private investors, as well as, of course, the major infrastructure funds and the more traditional investors are going to be really crucial, mm. not, not just now, but for years to come. There's now talk about both of these billionaires trying to build new consortiums around them to buy out this project without the other party. So now that it's gone into voluntary administration, there'll be essentially some kind of bidding war, potentially with these two guys and their new partners bidding against each other. Uh, there's talk that Mike Cannon-Brooks might partner up with um, Brookfield, a big Canadian um, fund manager who, who does a lot of work in the renewable space. Uh, not sure who Andrew Forrest might partner up with, but Macquarie Banker, another big player in investing in, in renewables. So where do you see the next steps of this? Who will step up to buy these assets? They've been pretty clear just over the, the last few days that that's definitely something that they're interested in. I think there's more a question about forest, uh, whether he does link up with anyone or whether, you know, <laughs> I think what we've seen at, um, you know, through this experience and also, you know, just through um, executive turnover at Fortescue um, and at uh, Squadron is that, you know, he's, uh, he, he's someone who actually likes having control of mm. these um, projects. You know, what we might see is actually Squadron, so Forrest, going it alone and, and actually not partnering up with anyone for this sort of thing. I think... Um, does he have the cash to do that? 
Well, um, I think you know, he'd still need to be bringing in investors, of course, uh, later on, on his own terms. But of course, that's still all to play out. And we are likely to also see some perhaps third party investors that you know, they haven't really been in this story so far. They could also come into the scene and, and could also be interested in bidding either alongside Grok or in competition with them. So that's all to play out. I think in the, you know, this is going to be resolved, I think, uh, certainly in, the, in terms of the immediate ownership of Sun Cable. It should be resolved within the next few weeks. That was Angela McDonald-Smith from the Australian Financial Review. Such a fascinating story and really interesting to hear that we should see what's going to happen within a few weeks. Who's going to step in and buy this project? Will one of the two billionaires win out? Will there be a third player? Or will it head into serious trouble? Keep watching. Tomorrow on The Briefing, well, I've been reading Prince Harry's memoir in full and going to give you our thoughts and insights on the book that is finally here telling his full story. Speak to you then. Listener.